Chapter Twenty Seven of Haworths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Reddick. Haworths by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter Twenty Seven: The Beginning. For some time there had hung over the conduct of Mister Brierly an air of deep mystery. The boon of his society had been granted to his family even less frequently than ever. His habit of sudden and apparently unaccountable disappearance from the home circle, after or even in the midst of an argument, had become more than usually pronounced. He went out every night, and invariably returned under the influence of malt liquor. "'Where he gets the brass bangs me,' said Mrs. Briley. "'He does not take it out of his wage, that's certain, for he has not been a half-penny short for three weeks.' "'And he does not get it out with tick, that I know. "'Bannet at the public is not a fool. "'Where does he get the brass from?' "'But this was not easily explained. "'On being catechized, Mr. Briley either shed tears of penitence "'or shook his head in deep solemnity of meaning. "'At times when he began to shake it, "'if the hour was late and his condition specially foggy, "'he was with difficulty induced to stop shaking it, but frequently continued to do so, with protracted fervour and significance gradually decreasing until he fell asleep. When he was sober, he was timorous and abstracted. He started at the sound of the opening door, and apparently existed in a state of secret expectation and alarm. "'I couldna tell thee, Sarah Ran,' he would say, "'at least,' with some tremor, "'I wouldna tell thee just yet. Thou it'll know it time.' He did not patronize the Huda thought it as much as formerly, in these days, Janey discovered. He evidently got the beer elsewhere, and at somebody's expense. His explanation of this was a brilliant and happy one, but it was only offered once, in consequence of the mode of its reception by its hearers. He presented it suddenly, one night, after some moments of silence and mental research. "'There's a gentleman as is a friend of mine,' he said, as has had uncommon luck. His heirs had died and left him a fortune, and he's come into it, and he's very much talk with me. I do not know if I ever seed only one as much talk with me, Sarah Run, and his heirs dying and leaving him a fortune. And there's how it is, Sarah Run, and there's how it is. That's brazen there, cried Mrs. Briley, aghast. That's brazen there, get out with thee, in an outburst of indignation. Thee and thy fortunes and heirs dine as if it were not bad enough at the start. A nice chap thou art to set thysen up to no gentlefolks with heirs to die and leave em brass. Ay, bless us, what art thou coming to? The result was not satisfactory, as Mr. Briarly felt keenly. Thou is getting no confidence in me, Sarah Ren, he said in weak protest. Thou has none no faith nor yet following the train of thought with manifest uncertainty, nor yet no works. The situation was so painful, however, that he made no further effort of the imagination to elucidate the matter, and it remained temporarily obscured in mystery. Only temporarily, however. A few weeks afterward, French came down from the works in great excitement. He went to Haworth's room, and finding him there, shut the door and almost dropped into a chair. "'What's up?' demanded Haworth with some impatience. "'What's up, man?' "'You haven't heard the report?' French answered tremulously. "'It hasn't reached you yet.' "'I've heard not to upset me.' 
out with it what's up he was plainly startled and lost a shade of colour but he held himself boldly french explained himself with trepidation the hands in moffat and moulton and howden are on the strike and those in dillop and burton are plainly about to follow suit i've just got a manchester paper which says the lookout is bad all over the country meetings have been going on in secret for some time he stopped and sat staring at his partner haworth was deathly pale he seemed for a moment to lack breath and then suddenly the colour rushed to his face again bye he said and stopped with the oath upon his lips don't swear for pity's sake broke forth french finding courage for protest in his very desperation it's not the time for it let's look the thing in the face look it in the face haworth repeated ay let's he said the words with a fierce sneer ay look it in the face man he said again that's the thing to do he bent forward extending his hand across the table let's see the paper he demanded french gave it to him and he read the paragraphs referred to in silence when he had finished them he folded the paper again mechanically they might have done it last year and welcome blast em he said french began to tremble you've ventured a good deal of late haworth he said weakly you've done some pretty daring things you know and haworth turned on him if i lose all i've made he said hoarsely shall i lose aught of yours lad french did not reply he sat playing with his watch-chain nervously he had cause for anxiousness on his own score and his soul quaked within him what is to be done he ventured at last there's only one thing to be done haworth answered pushing his chair back stop it here at the start stop it french echoed in amazement ay stop it he got up and took his hat down and put it on i'm going round the place and about the yards and into town he said there's naught for you to do but keep quiet the quieter ye keep the better for us go on as if you've heard not stay here a bit then walk over to the bank look alive man he went out and left french alone in the passage he came upon a couple of men who were talking together in low voices they stared at the sight of him then walked away slowly he went first to the engine room there he found floxham and murdoch talking also the old engineer wore an irritable air and was plainly in a testy mood murdoch looked fagged and pale of late he was often so as haworth entered he turned toward him muttering an exclamation he's here now he said that's well enough floxham gave him a glance from under his bent bushy brows ah we may as well out with it he touched his cap clumsily tell him he said to murdoch and hand it over murdoch spoke in a cool low voice i've found out he said that there's trouble on foot i began to suspect it a week ago some rough fellows from manchester and moulton have been holding secret meetings at a low place here some of the hands have been attending them last night a worse and larger gang came and remained in the town they're here now they mean mischief at least and there are reports afloat that strikes are breaking out on all sides haworth turned abruptly to floxham where do you stand he asked roughly the old fellow laid his grimy hand upon his engine i stand here my lad that's where and i'll stick to it unions or no unions that's the worst side of the trouble said murdoch 
Those who would hold themselves aloof from the rest will be afraid of the trades unions. If worse comes to worst, their very lives will be in danger. I know that. And so do we. Ah, lad, said Floxham, and that right there. Haworth ground his teeth and swore under his breath. Then he spoke to Murdoch. How's it going on here? he asked. Badly enough in a quiet way. You better go and see for yourself. He went out, walking from room to room, through the yards and wherever men were at work. Here and there a place was vacant. Where the work went on, it went on dully. He saw dogged faces and subdued ones. Those who looked up as he passed wore an almost deprecatory air. Those who did not look up at all bent over their tasks with an expression which was at least negatively defiant. His keen eye discovered favorable symptoms, however. Those who were in evil mood were his worst workmen, men who had their off days of drunken stupor and idleness, and the heads of departments were plainly making an effort to stir briskly and ignore the presence of any cloud upon their labor. By the time he had made the rounds, he had grasped the situation fully. The strait was desperate, but not as bad as it might have been. "'I may hold him,' he said to himself between his teeth. "'And by the Lord Henry, I'll try hard for it.' He went over to the bank and found French in his private room, pale and out of all courage. "'There will be a run on us by this time tomorrow,' he said. "'I see signs of it already.' "'Will there?' said Haworth. "'We'll see about that.' "'Wait a bit, my lad.' He went into the town and spent an hour or so taking a sharp lookout. Nothing escaped him. There were more idlers than usual about the alehouses, and more than once he passed two or three women talking together with anxious faces and in undertones. As he was passing one such group, one of the women saw him and started. "'There he is,' she said, and her companion turned with her, and they both stopped talking to look after him. Before returning, he went up to his partner's house. He asked for Miss French, and was shown into the room where she sat writing letters. She neither looked pleased nor displeased when she saw him, but rose to greet him at once. She gave him a rather long look. "'What is the matter?' she asked. Suddenly he felt less bold. The heat of his excitement failed to sustain him. He was all unstrung. "'I've come to tell you not to go out,' he said. "'There's trouble afoot in the trade. There's no knowing how it'll turn out.' There's a lot of chaps in the town who are not in the mood to see aught that'll fret em. They're ready for mischief, and have got drink in em. Stay you here, until we see which way the thing's going. Do you mean, she demanded, that there are signs of a strike? There's more than signs of it, he answered sullenly. Before night the whole place will be astir. She moved across the room and pulled the bell. A servant answered the summons instantly. I want the carriage she said. Then she turned to Haworth with a smile of actual triumph. Nothing could keep me at home, she said. I shall drive through the town and back again. Do you think I'll let them fancy that I am afraid of them? You're not afraid, he said almost in a whisper. I afraid, she answered. I? Wait here, she added. She left the room, and in less than ten minutes returned. He had never before seen in her the fire he saw then. There was a spark of light in her eyes, a color on her cheek. She had chosen her dress with distinct care for its luxurious richness. His exclamation, as she entered, buttoning her long, delicate glove, was a repressed oath. He exulted in her. 
his fear for her was gone, and only this exultation remained. "'You've made up your mind to that?' he said. He wanted to make her say more. "'I'm going to see your mother,' she answered. "'That will take me outside of the town. Then I shall drive back, again, slowly. They shall understand me at the least.' She let him lead her out to the carriage, which by this time was waiting. After she was seated in it, she bent forward and spoke to him. "'Tell my father where I am going, and why,' she said. End of chapter 27